Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson unveiled his plan this week to rejuvenate Britain's railways and tackle regional inequality. But some local leaders were unimpressed. If, if you're going to level up, this part of the world, if you're going to level up the north of England with the south, uh, east of England particularly, you, you have to unlock its full potential. And that means bringing forward your best solution, not a cut price uh, solution. Welcome to Paint Politics, your central insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In this slightly extended edition, we'll be delving into that plan for reshaping the railways, which you heard Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham lambast at the top. Is £100 billion of investment the biggest change in a generation or a massive disappointment? Chief political correspondent Jim Picard will discuss with a special guest, the former Chancellor and Chair of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, George Osborne. Well, on top of the rail announcement, it's been a rather torrid week for Boris Johnson. But later, we'll be looking at whether any of it matters. The Tories may be behind in the opinion polls, but is the party hanging with him and for how long? Political editor George Parker will analyse along with the FT's contributing editor, Camilla Cavendish. But first, Jim and George, welcome back to Payne's Politics. Morning. Good morning. Now, we're here to talk about trains, and I think you're both quite a train aficionado. So I'm going to go a little bit Alan Partridge for a moment and ask you both, what is your favourite train journey across the UK, Jim? Well, it wasn't the one that took 15 hours to get to COP26 a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I definitely know what my worst journey is. I, I, I just love London to Edinburgh. I love that route, and I love the way you see a bit of coast just in the final hour or so before you reach Edinburgh. And George, what about you? Well, I spend a good portion of my adult life on the West Coast mainline going up and down to my constituency in in Tatton. And, you know, when I started as an MP, it was a terrible journey. And then a huge amount of money was spent uh, on the West Coast mainline and it actually became very pleasant and very efficient. So I've seen in my own lifetime what serious investment and, and bold thinking can do to railway journeys. Indeed. And I'm going to go, obviously, I'm going to go stereotypical here and say for me, it still has to be the East Coast mainline as the trains pass through Durham and you go over that viaduct and see the cathedral and the castle appear on the distance for me. That is always my top moment of going on trains across the UK. But let's look at where the railways are heading into the future. The integrated rail plan is long expected and long delayed. It's a key plank of Boris Johnson's pledge to level up the country to tackle regional inequality. It is delivering three new high-speed lines and boosting lots of other smaller services across the country. But the plan has attracted much ire this week for cancelling the eastern leg of the Grand High Speed 2 project and failing to fulfil the initial vision for Northern Powerhouse Rail. Speaking in his hard hat and high-vis jacket, Boris Johnson defended his decision to scale back some of the projects. Now, the problem with that is they, those, those extra high-speed lines take decades uh, and 
they don't deliver the commuter benefits that I'm talking about. This is the biggest investment in, uh, in, in rail in the history of uh, the country, or at least for 100 years. And it's a, it's a fantastic thing. So, Jim, you've been looking and analysing about this plan for months, if not years. Now it's finally arrived. What do you make of it between these very two quite stark interpretations of what the government has come up with? So it would be very easy to get carried away by some some of the headlines and the vox pops and the reaction to, to think that this is all terrible and that somehow Boris Johnson has reneged completely on his promises to the north. I mean, what, what is happening is, is that the cuts are, as you said earlier, on the eastern leg of HS2. So instead of going from Birmingham all the way up to Leeds, that goes from Birmingham to somewhere near Nottingham and then stops. And then from Leeds to Manchester, there was meant to be an entirely new high-speed line and instead, that's going to be half new line and half upgrades from Leeds to somewhere near Huddersfield. But the uh, western leg is still going ahead, you know, London to Birmingham, all the way up to Manchester. There are upgrades to the East Coast main line. There's electrification of the Midland main line. There's a bit of money thrown in the direction of Leeds to potentially do a future tram. Ironically, Andy Burnham, who we just played a recording of complaining about this, Andy Burnham is getting the same speeds from London to Manchester. And when it comes to Manchester to Leeds, you wouldn't know this listening to people, but it's currently 53 minutes. It was going to go down to 29 minutes. It's now going to go to 33 minutes. So Andy Burnham City is still getting great transport connections. The city that is in trouble off the back of this is Leeds. And so is Bradford. Bradford's missing out on high speed three and Leeds is missing out on HS2. And they have every right to be quite upset. And of course, it's no coincidence that Leeds and Bradford maybe don't have many Conservative representatives, while other areas of the country that are benefiting do. Now, George, when you look at the plans that were put forward here, I assume you were slightly disappointed because when you were Chancellor, you were a huge advocate of High Speed 2 and getting it finally delivered. But you also have been an advocate of High Speed 3 and that new East-West rail link across Northern England. And both of those really aren't living up to the ambition that you set up um, when you were in government. Yeah, look, it is uh, pretty disappointing. And it's not often you can say this about Boris Johnson, but he lacks ambition. You know, what we have is a very welcome programme of upgrading uh, our existing rail network. I have to say it's pretty much the same programme that's been in front of ministers for the last 10 years. So I don't think this government has done particularly much with it, but it, it, you know, it, it continues to sort of roll out. He's preserved... HS2 to Manchester, which is absolutely critical. And of course, over the years, that has been under threat since I left office. But it's great to have that confirmed. It's just disappointing that the eastern leg to Leeds has been cancelled and that they've gone back to the old kind of network rail plan to upgrade the Trans-Pennine route, which was put in front of me five or six years ago. And I thought it was more ambitious for the country, would deliver greater economic benefits for the north help with levelling up, not the slogan I used at the time, but now the slogan of the day, if we had had a brand new line across the Trans-Pennine, uh, across the Pennines. I mean, look, I'm going to, I, you know, I would hope to be a kind of glass half full person here. There's a lot of high-speed rail being built. And frankly, I don't think high-speed rail in the east of England up to Yorkshire is dead yet. You've had the Labour Party commit very quickly to build it. I think the pressure will grow on the Conservatives because actually, I hate to pick you up on your politics, Seb, but there are actually quite a lot of marginal seats around Bradford and Leeds. And I think the uh, politics of that over the next two years will see 
uh, and it wouldn't be for the first time, our Prime Minister execute a U-turn and uh, come back to promising an eastern leg of HS2 just over uh, a longer period of time. And what do you think is going to cause that U-turn? Because obviously we know Boris Johnson has been in favour of high-speed rail. And I think he did that review when he first became Prime Minister and still went along with it, even though his people around him, his transport advisor, Andrew Gilligan, for example, is sceptical. So what moment is going to make him change his mind on that eastern leg? Well, I think the economics of it and the, um, the benefits it brings to the north of England, both the eastern leg to Leeds, but also crucially, the east-west link from uh, Manchester across to Leeds and Bradford, you know, are, are very self-evident. The business community in the north, the council leaders, both Conservative and Labour in the north, are absolutely clear that it would create the connectivity to allow these uh, metropolitan clusters to grow and bring economic growth to the north. Um, and I've spoken to you before about how Sebastian, it's not just enough to sort of say we want to level up. You actually have to have an economic theory behind it. And the economic theory is you connect these cities together and then you will bring economic growth, not just to the cities, but the towns around. Uh, what I think will, you know, undermine essentially the position the government's taken this week is they've had, you know, a terrible, let's be honest, they've had an absolutely terrible reaction. They've spent £100 billion of public money and they have got a massive raspberry from... <laughs> Everyone, as far as I can see, Conservative MPs in the North, council leaders, the business community and so on. I mean, it's, you know, it's a kind of PR exercise. It's been an object lesson in how not to make a government announcement. And I think, therefore, you know, in politics, therefore, you know, often these therefore are not sort of settled positions if, thing has, if something hasn't worked and uh, people haven't really bought it. And I think the pressure that the Labour Party is applying by committing particularly to the east-west line, HS3 or Northern Powers Rail, depending on what you want to call it, you know, all of these things will work away. And fundamentally, you'll get into a general election period and it'll be like, what can you do for the north? You know, the other side is promising further rail improvement, high-speed rail, and, and I suspect the Conservatives will end up uh, recommitting to it. Just to be a rather pointless, um, you know, but we, I guess we're used to it sometimes on British Railways, a rather pointless delay. Now, just before I come back to Jim, this thing about ambition is an interesting one because obviously Boris Johnson was out and about quite a lot yesterday saying, you know, this is the single biggest package in 100 years and £100 billion is a sizable sum of money. And when you look at the other grand projet the Prime Minister likes to talk about, be it the Boris Island Airport, the bridge to um, the Republic of Ireland, all these things are very grand in their ambition. And it's quite striking that he's actually pulled back from that because when you look at the integrated rail plan as you mentioned George lots of it is smaller stuff you can deliver now it feels to me as if he's looking at what he can get some shovels in the ground before the next election and then the next election after that you can actually have some of this stuff done but it does seem to go against his normal political instinct. When he was the London mayor he actually delivered some significant infrastructure change, uh, improvements. So uh, working with me and the, the then uh, David Cameron government, you know, we delivered an extension to the tube line, uh, which is uh, uh, to Battersea Power Station, which has happened, you know, is, is, is um, being unveiled. We, we worked together on Crossrail, which, although it's been delayed, is an incredible infrastructure project underneath London that's going to deliver benefits for decades to come. So, you know, real infrastructure was delivered by Boris Johnson as mayor. But he would know, I would think, from his experience as mayor, that you can't just talk about infrastructure. You can't just talk about having an island airport or, a, you know, a bridge to Ireland or 
whatever it happens to be. It's painful. You have to build political consensus. There are always people against big infrastructure projects, just like there were there was huge opposition to the Channel Tunnel and the M25 and indeed the original railways back in the 19th century. Uh, you have to build that political consensus. You have to drive it forward over many different governments. You know, high-speed rail has now been talked about under four different governments, four different prime ministers. And in a way, the money is, is I wouldn't say is the the least important thing, because it's incredibly important, it's taxpayers' money. But finding the money for these infrastructure projects is is actually, I found as Chancellor, much the easier part. It's building the political consensus, getting the planning, getting the approval. And so, you know, I would say about Boris Johnson and his government, you can talk about big infrastructure, but unless you actually deliver it, it's going to sound a bit hollow and, and like a, a failure to deliver it. And, and you, you know, it's, if you tear up HS2, the plans to go on the eastern leg to Yorkshire or indeed the Trans-Pennine HS3, what's your alternative? But, and, and will people really believe you if you say instead we're going to do X or Y? You know, in the end, the proof on the infrastructure projects is the delivery. It can happen. As I say, look at the tube lines in London, look at the crossrail that was about to open, look at, look at the Olympic Park, another great Boris Johnson success story. But on levelling up, at the moment, it feels more like a slogan than a plan. Well, Jim, I think that's the key thing to take away from all this when you look at the reaction from Northern leaders. And there's also a media management point here that this story was uh, made its way into the Sunday papers, a probably semi-official leak from somewhere inside Whitehall. And then we had four days of a vacuum where there was no announcement from government and that you and I did reporting trying to figure out what was going on here. But it felt as if it was all quite badly mishandled because, as you said, this idea grew amongst northern local newspapers, northern leaders, they were being let down. And I mm. think this is going to be a big problem because all of Boris Johnson's re-election chances hang on being able to do what George was talking about and saying, you voted for us for change, we've delivered it, here's this tangible new thing you can see in your community. And if they don't see that, then they will feel let down. And the way they've handled the announcement this week has really just been an open goal for Labour and those who think that levelling up is just a slogan doesn't have detail behind it. Yeah, I, th- I think the initial leak to the Sunday Times the weekend, which I mean, firstly it was wrong because it suggested that there'd be a new high-speed rail link between Sheffield and Leeds, but also the spin on it was so implausible because it made it sound like they completely believed the government's line that this was a new era of mass investment and huge amount of money pouring into the railways, which is which is obviously half true, but you know they're trying to spin it as this is an extra fifty billion of investment. The reality is that it's something like thirty or forty billion less than the programme that they had in place until yesterday morning. It's quite interesting. Trying to compare the two figures is 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 proving almost impossible. You can ask the Treasury, you can ask Downing Street, you can ask the DFT, you know, what, what is the effective savings that you're making here? And that there's nothing wrong with trying to get value for money for taxpayers, I, sh- I should emphasise. And no one can actually give you a clear answer at all. And partly that reflects the fact that they think they don't really know where HS2's cost estimates have got to because it's such a fast program. But anyway, so the, the spin went didn't land very well on Sunday. And then we had four days for people to sort of get their heads around what was actually going on and criticise it. And I think probably in terms of media management, they should have brought the statement forward to Monday or Tuesday just to just so they could put their argument across more quickly. And then this point about you know, would it look like hollow promises being made by the government? I think the over-promising, under-delivering issue is definitely a problem or a potential problem for Boris Johnson, especially when you've got all these seats that have been promised 
leveling up and you know bridge to ireland is just one example of a, of a sort of pie in the sky scheme that's not going anywhere you know he he did promise to do uh, the entirety of hs2 and he did promise to do hs3 and it's fascinating to watch hugh merriman who's the conservative chair of the transport select committee saying in this amazing quote yesterday this is the danger in selling perpetual sunlight and leaving the others to explain the arrival of moonlight so they've got themselves in a position where yes they're spending 96 billion pounds yes it's less than it was before and it's it's the under delivery which is going to prove problematic for them can i just pick up on something jim saying of course the, you know how you handle announcements in politics is incredibly important delivering on your promises is important Fundamentally, what's important is delivering the real change. You know, we have a backdrop where the economy is looming as the sort of central issue facing the country with real incomes being squeezed, inflation and the like. Uh, and levelling up, uh, which I believe passionately and as someone who, you know, originally threw myself into the Northern Powerhouse Project, is not just about moving a government department here or there, paying for a new town, you know, centre refurbishment scheme. It's about fundamentally persuading the private sector, the the business community, uh, to go and locate their businesses and create jobs in communities that have not had those before. And government infrastructure, railways, universities uh, and the like supports that and attracts that. Now, it's worked spectacularly well over the last 20, 30 years, over most of my adult lifetime, in places like Manchester and Leeds, you know, where we've seen a transformation of those cities. So it's not impossible to do, far from it. But you've got to have a proper economic theory and a proper thought-through plan that's going to take many, many years. It can't be all delivered in one year. It's never going to be, to use your phrase, shovel-ready, because if it was shovel-ready, many previous governments would have done it and the problem would have been solved. It's a long-term commitment to creating economic clusters that private investment flows into the public sector support. And if you start, you know, pulling bits of the wiring out, so a plan that's been in place for a decade now to have HS2 to Leeds has suddenly been ditched. Well, you know, that makes the private sector say, well, why am I going to go and put my new company headquarters in uh, Leeds? Why am I going to move my you know, factory to Bradford? And that, to me, is, you know, it's the kind of consistency, it's the serious thinking that you need to underpin all this, the proper economic theory that supports policy. And then you do reap the political benefits when over, you know, when a government, this government would be perfectly entitled to think, let's see the benefits over five, six, seven years. That's when you reap the political benefits. But if it's all just, you know, if you think people are going to believe like 100 billion for this, here's, a, here's my slogan, I'm committed. I'm afraid people, you know, public aren't stupid. They begin to see through that. And just, just to follow up on that, I mean, George was suggesting earlier that Boris Johnson could at the next election promise to revive the Eastern leg of HS2, but he's going to have credibility issues trying to make that promise. I think that's a fair point. Now, I just want to finally finish on where this leaves levelling up, because obviously this is a two-pronged part of this. We have the integrated rail plan, which we've talked about, but then also we've got the levelling up white paper, which is being written by Neil O'Brien, who is the junior levelling up minister, and Michael Gove, the secretary of state for levelling up in the department that used to be called communities, housing and local government. Now, I think what's been trying to done there, Jim, is to add some basis to levelling up, because as George said, I think, 
you know, lots of what we've seen so far through the Towns Fund, Future High Streets Fund, and through the Leveling Up Fund is small pots of money doled out around the country. And that might give people a palpable perception of change, you know, seeing a high street that looks a bit nicer, but it's not going to affect their jobs. It's not going to affect their income and it's not going to affect their productivity. And fundamentally, that's what Leveling Up is going to be about. Based on what you've seen from the rail plan, does that make you feel more or less confident, Jim, that this is going to happen? I mean, I, I'm quite cynical about levelling up generally. And you'll you remember I did that story three or four weeks ago about how in the, in the last year or so, the number of civil servants in London had grown by 11,000, about 11 percent, while civil servants had, yes, grown a little bit in other parts of the country. But the biggest increase in, in the civil service was in London at the same time that the chancellor, the current chancellor, was talking about how we're going to move 20,000 jobs out of London. I, I really need to see the proof in the pudding of, of, of this of this one on the levelling up. I and mean, I think there are, there are tangible things they have done, like trying to change the, the Treasury's rules around how you do investment. But I think, I think it was actually George Osborne himself, who in your book said, when you interviewed them, talked about town fund and high street funds being relatively small pots of money compared to the scale of the challenge in front of them. And I, I couldn't agree more. I thought I thought that was absolutely spot on, to be honest. And finally, George, what do you make of this? Because obviously, um, Neil O'Brien, who, as I mentioned, is the Minister for Leveling Up, used to be an advisor to you, I think, when you were Chancellor. And I think he's widely seen across Westminster as a serious policy brain who's going to get stuck into this. But when we spoke for our interview in my book um, earlier this year, you know, the, as you said, the Northern Powerhouse concept came from the theory done by Jim O'Neill about you link together those great northern cities and you get an agglomeration effect that can counter the economic way of London and the South East. Given what we've seen with high-speed rail and given how Boris Johnson operates and runs his government, do you think that that theory still stands? Can it still work? And can you do levelling up in a different way at all? Or is it or is it still that same theory that you looked at in 2014? Well, there's nothing new about governments wanting to level up. I mean, Harold Wilson's government was talking about building motorways in the north, moving government departments to the north. These are, this is not new. Uh, the ambition has been there for decades uh, under Labour, Conservative and a, and a coalition government. What I think, and it has worked in, in some areas, I, I point to these urban centres like Manchester and Newcastle and indeed the centre of Liverpool and Leeds, which you know have been transformed over my lifetime as... Uh, urban rail improvements have been brought, like Metrolinks, uh, universities have grown, in fact, due to student finance reform, which uh, was so controversial, and cultural uh, institutions have moved there and uh, to these great centres or grown in those great centres. So, you, you, you know, it can work. But if you think that uh, coming up with uh, like another pot of money that you call your levelling up fund, which you know, David Cameron called the Town Centre Fund, which Tony Blair called something else. It's going to change the dark. That, that's a mistake. You've got to have the long-term serious thinking of which, of course, big rail projects, which take many decades, are part of it. And it gives me a great kind of confidence and hope that Neil O'Brien and Michael Gove, who I think are two of the smartest members of the government, are now engaged on this agenda. I think the agenda is absolutely the right one. I applaud Boris Johnson for making it like centrepiece of... Uh, his domestic agenda. But now it needs to be delivered and it's not going to be delivered if you think you need to see the results in six months' time you know, and, and you're just looking for a kind of cheap budget announcement. It, it, it requires long-term thinking and unfortunately HS2, there was a lot of long-term thinking and a lot of long-term support for it. It's great that half of it's going ahead 
and I hope that the other half will survive this uh, temporary setback. George and Jim, thank you very much. It's undoubtedly been a difficult week for Boris Johnson. On top of the rail saga we were discussing earlier, the Prime Minister has also U-turned on paid consultancy for MPs. Instead of scrapping the whole system of parliamentary standards, he's now come out in favour of ending political and parliamentary lobbying, however that's defined. The series of scandals appears to have finally impacted Johnson's ratings, with a run of opinion polls putting the Tories behind the Labour Party. And Labour have also gone studs in, with Sir Keir Stam delivering one of his punchiest performances as Prime Minister's questions to date. Everybody else, everybody else has apologised for him, but he won't apologise for himself. A coward, not a leader. And that's a remark he would later withdrew. Can I say there was a lot of language that I couldn't hear today, and I certainly don't want words. Coward is not what is used in this house, and I'm sure that Leader of Opposition would withdraw. withdraw. I withdraw it, but he's no leader. Well, George Parker, when you look at that scene from Prime Minister's Questions this week, it sort of speaks to what the mood's like been for Boris Johnson, that obviously the whole business of a parliamentary standards has been a complete mess. And I don't think there's a single Conservative MP either of us have spoken to this week who would say it's gone pretty well. But it does seem to have shaken the Prime Minister and the Tory party's national standing. Well, it does. You mentioned there have been a series of polls which confirm a trend that's been going on for a few months now of the government's approval rating starting to fall, Boris Johnson's own personal approval rating falling as well. It's been a steady trend and it's, you know, the, the last few days have been terrible for Boris Johnson. You know, the scenes in the House of Commons for Prime Minister's Question Time, it wasn't just that Keir Starmer was going in very hard on Boris Johnson and it wasn't just that we spoke to lots of MPs, didn't we, Seb, who were absolutely furious with Boris Johnson and the way he's handled all of this. But what was most ominous for him was the inanimate objects of the green leather benches behind the Prime Minister, empty, lots of empty spaces there where normally the House of Commons is packed, of MPs withholding their support from Boris Johnson. I thought that was quite ominous as well. So he's had a pretty bad few weeks and I think number 10 have been shaken by it. Well, Camilla Cavendish, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. You've written about the second jobs for Argo recently as well. Where Boris Johnson's ended up on this this week is it, the whole thing is quite mad when you think about it. By this point, Owen Paterson would have been 40% through his punishment <laughs> and his suspension from the House of Commons if they hadn't blown up this whole thing. But they have, and they've decided to essentially back the 2018 recommendations of Lord Bew, which is to end paid political and parliamentary consultancy. How do you think that's going to change Parliament and the Tory party? Well, it's fascinating, Seb. I mean, obviously, no one would have wanted to get here the way he's got here. But actually, it is really astonishing, I think, that MPs were ever allowed to do paid consultancy in the first place. I mean, the, the whole structure sort of goes is really a century old. You know, this is a parliament in which people used to all have second jobs. Debates don't usually start till 230 it's actually very difficult for working mothers, for example, because everything happens late at night on the basis that you're quite often doing something else. I think there is going to be a, a shift in terms of how MPs see the job. But I think outlawing paid consultancy is, is pretty basic. I don't think it's going to affect that many people. I think the real issue for the Conservative Party is the split between younger people who are often fighting really marginal seats who absolutely don't have a spare minute to do a second job who are pretty resentful against what they see as an older crowd of MPs in very safe seats indeed, many of whom have been around for a long time, 
some of whom have been in cabinet and no longer really expect to be in cabinet again, who may, like Owen Paterson in some cases, be treading far too close to the wind. And I think that split is is quite important. I agree. I did a piece this week looking at the 2019 intake, which is 107 MPs who came in. And so it's one of the biggest conservative intakes for some years. It's geographically very diverse. Everybody thinks of them as the Red Wall as representing the Northern Midlands, but they also represent some of the safest Tory seats in the country, you know, Newbury in Berkshire or Sevenoaks in Kent. And I think what I found, Camilla, when you start diving into the 2019 intake is just, you know, many of them were not even born when the likes of Christopher Choke, who got himself into the news this week for blocking that report into Owen Patterson, even went into Parliament. And the way they look at the world, the way they look at the internet, the way they look at campaigning is entirely different. But then there's also real policy differences too. I think they're not quite as ideological on things like free markets or how they look at the role of the state, for example. What that reflects, Seb, is that, you know, why should being an MP be a job for life? I mean, the whole point of being an MP is supposedly that you have the courage to stand for election and you're ready to be kicked out. And I think part of the problem goes back to our electoral system. You know, we've actually got too many safe seats. If we had a much more proportional system, MPs would have to be on their toes. They'd also, I think, probably, you know, might even have to earn a bit more to, to attract really good people. But it is a slightly odd system when you've got people in there for 30 years who, as you say, are now looked at as an old guard by a new generation of really, really good young politicians. And George, when you look at that older generation, obviously this change that Boris Johnson brought in could lead to a clear out if you think of the likes of that old and bold brigade we've both written about quite a lot of the recent weeks, you know, the Owen Pattersons, David Davis, Ian Duncan Smith, all people whose ministerial careers are behind them and they're probably sort of drifting towards retirement. Do you think many of them will decide to quit the Commons at the next election, sort of giving up their outside interests? I think that's probably right. I mean, it's just a generational change, isn't it, really? And um, I think a lot of the people you mentioned there will feel they've achieved a lot of their political ambitions. I mean, it's no coincidence, by the way, that all the MPs you mentioned there were among the the Brexiteers, the the Spartans, the sort of people who pushed very hard for, for, um, you know, in a more ideological way. I think you're talking about the new brigade being slightly less ideological. I think Brexit would come into that category as well, you know. These are people who tended to be sort of forged in the Thatcher Revolution, Eurosceptic, small states, small ta- low tax conservatives, and Brexit, you know, has happened. I think a lot of them will feel they've achieved some of their one of their biggest political ob- objectives. And yes, I think a lot of them will retire at the next election. Now, obviously, it's not just us who are saying it's been a difficult week for the Conservative Party. Robert Jenrick, who was Housing Secretary, spoke to ITV this week, and this is how he described the la- the last couple of weeks for the government. Well, I think it has been a a very difficult two weeks and almost everyone involved would agree that it's been handled poorly by the government and it's damaged the government to an extent and it's damaged Parliament as well. And as a member of Parliament, now a backbench member of Parliament. Now, Camilla, do you agree with that? Because obviously Boris Johnson has this ability to always bounce back time and time again. And many posters and pundits have looked at the travails of this government through the coronavirus pandemic and just said, well, how are they not taking more of a knock in the opinion post? But it finally seems to have happened. Is that just a build-up of frustration or is it the particular events we've seen with the rail and with the second jobs and quote-unquote Tory sleaze? Well, I always say never underestimate Boris Johnson, but I do think this is a moment. And I think what the Conservative Party is now looking at in the Patterson saga is a man who 
rushed to judgment, got it wrong, created a sort of self-inflicted injury which goes way beyond him and his own party to sending ripples through Parliament and actually doesn't read his briefs. And, you know, I read the Paston Report. It's not very long. It wouldn't have taken... Boris Johnson very long to read it himself, and I can't think of any previous Prime Minister who would not have taken the trouble to read the key paragraphs of the Patterson Report before going to the House of Commons to whip his people on that issue. And the fact that he clearly doesn't read his briefs across a wide range of policy areas is becoming a real worry. And I think actually competence is as much a worry now for the party as sleaze. And the two things, I'm afraid, go together. Well, George, I think that sense of grip seems to be a growing issue, particularly with regards to Boris Johnson's Downing Street operation, because there's a sense that he hasn't got enough political people in there. There's not enough people to stand up to him, because when you just stand back and look at the whole second jobs, Owen Patterson row, it boggles the mind there was not somebody in there who just said, hang on a minute, this is a really dumb idea and this is going to backfire spectacularly. Do you sure you want to go ahead with this Prime Minister? And as Camilla said, there's a widespread view in Westminster that the Prime Minister hadn't even read the report into Owen Patterson before he went along with this scheme to try and scrap parliamentary standards to save him and then had to U-turn in a very embarrassing way. And it was at the 1922 committee this week he admitted that on open road he crashed the car into a ditch. It was a shambles of a very high order and as Camilla says it reflected not just bad judgment but a lack of grip and a lack of competence it reflected an underpowered operation in number 10 where people aren't able to see round corners and warn warn the prime minister what's coming coming up there are conservative MPs who think he should spend a lot more time consulting them of course you'd expect them to say that Uh, and of course there are people who think the cabinet should be A, more closely involved in decision-making like this, and B, there should be people in the cabinet prepared to stand up and say, Prime Minister, you're getting this wrong. And I think the fact that he made such a mistake on something, this is a point that Dominic Cummings actually made in the former advisor to to Boris Johnson, if you get it wrong on something like Owen Patterson, where it's so obviously a stupid thing to do, how many other stupid things are you going to do? And I've been writing this week a bit about Northern Ireland and the, the Northern Ireland protocol, the fallout of Brexit. Well, there are a lot of people around the government who think that let's just get this over and done with. We told people we were going to get Brexit done. We're still talking about it. There are a whole load of people in the Owen Patterson camp who like another big fight with Brussels about Northern Ireland. But equally, there are a whole load of less ideological 2019 intake MPs who would rather just move on from Brexit now. You know, the fact that he got it so wrong on Patterson, I think, will lead people to question his judgment on other things. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've seen the government in the last few days sort of dialing back the rhetoric on Northern Ireland, knowing they don't want another fight, which ultimately could uh, could go wrong. Well, Camilla, in a past life, you've obviously worked in Downing Street. From the outside, when you look at Boris Johnson's government, do you agree with what George said there, that it is this issue that there's not enough grip, there's not enough dissenting voices, and the cabinet feel unable or unwilling to stand up to the prime minister? Yeah, look, I think people always talk about cabinet, but I think when you get into cabinets, you know, politicians are ambitious and actually I suspect most cabinets don't stand up enough to prime ministers because they owe him their job or her their job. But I think the number 10 operation is in difficulty at the moment. I think they don't seem to be able to provide the challenge that Dominic Cummings did when he was in there. And the irony is, in a way, 
that whatever you think about Dominic Cummings, he was openly challenging the Prime Minister in meetings. Some people found that quite alarming, but he did, and he often got his way. And I think what we're now seeing is Boris Johnson unplugged in a way. What, what, what does that actually mean? What does Boris Johnson himself really think about things? And I think he's got this huge majority, and I think it's given him a false sense of confidence, probably. And he needs to bring in... He's lost Eddie Lister, who he relied on as Mayor of London, who's a very wise soul. He's got some very good people in number 10. I suspect it's more about actually making the time to listen to them. And so, can I just pick up something, going back to your earlier discussion about the, the rail saga? Another example of just completely bizarre thinking in number 10, the idea that you would trail the announcement on HS2 to the Sunday newspapers, knowing that the Secretary of State Grant Shapps wasn't going to make the announcement until Thursday, then allowing yourself to be pummeled by the media for four whole days about this U-turn, absolutely slaughtered by the newspapers in the north of England before the government actually puts its full side of the argument. It's a, that's just a, a, one example and one of the areas where Tory MPs are just scratching their heads and thinking, who's actually in charge here? Do you know, George, I mean, you're much wiser than me about these media things. I mean, I thought that might have been deliberate because I thought they were so desperate to take the heat off sleeves, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, I'm well, that's, Camilla, that's, exact, that's exactly what people in, the tra- in Grant Shapps, the Transport <laughs> Secretary's office or department, think, that this was something that was put out there by Number 10 to try and divert attention from mm. sleeves. But as a consequence of that, not only did it not, not knock sleeves off the front page, they opened themselves up to four days of speculation on an announcement which hadn't yet been made. And I think the two things, Camilla, that sort of feel like they're missing from Downing Street, number one is that political instinct at the very top. And the second of all is that strategic thinking. Because if we look forward to the coming weeks in terms of politics, George obviously mentioned we've got the question about Brexit and Article 16. We've got the long delayed levelling up white paper that's going to try and define what this project is and how it's going to be measured in terms of success. You've also got obviously the bumpiness of the economy. You've as well have got coronavirus to get through the winter. So there are some big challenges ahead. And it feels like if this issue isn't rectified quite soon, then Boris Johnson is going to keep getting into these same problems over and over again. Yeah, my my big worry and, and most people's big worry is inflation is rearing its head. What's their plan for that? What are they going to spend the money on? They've they've upset Tory voters by, you know, signaling a na- massive hike in national insurance. No detail of how they're going to spend that. You know, the NHS and social care reforms are only half done. I totally, totally agree. And if I was the Prime Minister right now, I would be focusing on bringing in the best possible brains to do that strategic thinking right now if it hasn't been done. And finally, George, what do you see politics the rest of this year looking like? I think the government is going to want to try to get to Christmas without any more mistakes. So I think there's going to be a lot of more caution in number 10 over the over the coming weeks. Look, going back to something that Camilla was saying earlier, you shouldn't write off Boris Johnson. You know, he's an election winning machine, as he's proven over and over again. And it may be in six weeks, six months or six weeks time, even we've forgotten all about the this latest bad week for Boris Johnson. The only thing I'd say to counter that is that things are looking quite difficult for him in the next few months. Camilla mentioned rising inflation, the cost of living crisis, tax rises coming down the line in April. And the problem for Boris Johnson is that reality is now starting to catch up with him. The fact that the public finances are strained to the very limit, the fact that taxes are already at the highest level since 1950, he can't spend his way out of difficulty, as we discovered this this week with the rail announcement. So if you're running out of money and you're running out of political initiative 
and support is starting to look a bit shaky, it's a very, very difficult time for the Prime Minister. So this could be a very, very challenging winter for Boris Johnson, a big test of his mettle as Prime Minister. Well, George and Camilla, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then yes, you could please subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also enjoy positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next week, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.